the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Sponsored by the Law Office of Robert Bergman. Welcome to Plan Your Estate Radio with your host, San Jose Estate Planning Attorney Bob Bergman. Bob's been practicing law for over 30 years and is certified by the State Bar of California as a legal specialist in estate planning trust and probate law. Bob is here to help you set your house in order with valuable insights you can use today to prepare a better tomorrow for your loved ones. And now your host for Plan Your Estate Radio, Attorney Bob Bergman. Good afternoon, Bay Area. This is Bob Bergman broadcasting from his office in San Jose, California. Uh, I try to broadcast from from my office whenever possible because uh, it's a little difficult sometimes to make the trip up to Fremont, which is where the studios are. So I broadcast here from San Jose because I find it, um, it works a lot better to do it that way. Now, I don't know about the rest of you, but this past week uh, was really a scorcher here in San Jose. Um, there were times I felt like I was about to um, melt into the pavement uh, something about leaving your office and finding out it's 102 degrees outside is a little bit unnerving. Uh, I was surprised a few days ago, a couple days ago, I looked and saw when it was 100 here in San Jose, I saw there were a couple of other places where it was 100 degrees as well. It was 100 degrees in Turlock and in Las Vegas, which really, really amazed me because I thought how often in the San Jose area do we end up with a temperature that is close to that in Las Vegas, especially as we're entering into the summer here? <clears throat> but that being said, um, I would like to uh, to start the show today by kind of picking up on where I ended a couple weeks ago. I, I was hoping to do it last week, um, but I had something come up and I and I had a rebroadcast. So those of you who uh, Hopefully you heard that rebroadcast. It was the first time for you. If it wasn't, it was probably a good refresher. I'm going to talk today about um, another type of petition that I do as an attorney. A couple weeks ago, I talked about what's called the Hegstat petition, which is a petition that is designed specifically to get loose property into somebody's trust after they have died by going through the uh, <clears throat> by going through the probate court and using documentary evidence that the person intended that property to be in their trust either in their trust during lifetime <clears throat> or turned over to their trust after death well there's another type of petition that I do and I want to introduce to you all right now I have just put up and uh, made available for um for those who are interested I have just put up two new workshops, seminar workshops on Eventbrite. 
Uh, one of them is called Modifying Your Broken Living Trust Workshop, and the other one is called Gathering Loose Assets into a Trust Without Probate, another workshop. I couldn't figure out a really catchy name for the second one, which basically describes the Hegstat petition, because if I said the Hegstat petition, most people would have no idea what I was talking about. <laughs> so these new seminars have gone up. Uh, they're going to be right after my Living Trust seminar on July 13th, which starts at 9 a.m. in my office. There's going to be the Modifying Your Broken Living Trust workshop starting at 11 o'clock in my office and the Gathering Loose Assets into a Trust Without Probate, which will start at 11.30. So the second two uh, presentations or workshops are a half an hour each. And I urge you that if you're in a situation like this, either where you have now taken over a trust and you find out that there are assets that were not transferred into the trust, and I don't care where those assets are, if it's uh, California real estate, have to be California real estate, but other things like bank accounts, brokerage accounts, those could be pretty much anywhere. If you're in that situation, then come to the 11 a.m. present, excuse me, the 11.30 a.m. presentation on July 13th, uh, gathering loose assets into a trust without probate. If you have a situation where you are a surviving spouse and you had an older style trust, what we call the AB marital trust, that requires you to divide assets up because your spouse has passed. Or if you did that a number of years ago and you would like to undo that and your family goes along with that, come to the Modifying Your Broken Living Trust workshop at 11 a.m. on July 13th. Now, you can register through through my website, at lawbob, L-A-W-B-O-B dot com. You can also, if you wish, go to eventbrite.com and search for seminars and workshops on July 13th. I think you will likely find mine there and you can register through there. Now, I want to let you know that space is limited. I only have space for 15 people to attend one of these workshops or seminars. So if you're interested, Go there and register right away. Now, I will be taking calls today, so if you would like to call in, you have a question for me, it's 800-516-1220. That's 800-516-1220. Or you could email me at radio at lawbob.com. That's R-A-D-I-O at lawbob, L-A-W, B-O-B, I practice law, my name is Bob. That's why my website is lawbob.com. Now, I'm going to talk a little bit today, maybe uh, the rest of this segment and the second segment today, I'm going to talk about uh, basically modifying your broken living trust and what we're really talking about there. Won't cover everything that's covered in my workshop, but uh, a lot of it will be covered. But if you'd like to come and you have your own questions, we can certainly deal with that at the workshop. Now, many trusts that were established a long time ago, especially for married couples, were established back when federal estate tax had a relatively low exclusion from taxation. What that means, the federal estate tax is a wealth transfer tax that's imposed on your estate when you die. 
and it's imposed if you have a large enough estate. Well, if we're talking 20 years ago or so, you're talking about an estate that might be uh, $600,000, might be a million dollars. And here in the Bay Area, there's a lot of estates that are more than that amount. When you add in the equity in a home, you add in life insurance, you add in the value of uh, brokerage accounts, checking accounts, retirement plans, things like that. So back in the day, we did trusts that were designed to actually divide the estate into two pieces when the first spouse died, taking the share of the spouse that died and putting it into a trust that was irrevocable, called a bypass or exemption trust, that was designed to have that property not be subject to the federal estate tax when the surviving spouse died. That's It would bypass the taxable estate of the surviving spouse, which is why we called it the bypass trust. Now, fast forward to today in the federal estate tax exclusion, instead of being $600,000, currently it's over $11 million per person dying. That means that many trusts like this, which were designed primarily for estate tax planning and avoiding the estate tax, actually are what I call broken. The purpose that they were established with this type of trust form is no longer valid for the vast majority of people who did this. So because of that, many people want to undo that. Now, the best way is if you're both still alive is to have that trust redone and do a different type of trust planning today. I do that all the time for people. However, if a spouse has already passed away and you have that kind of trust, there is relief possible. And uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about that and, and what we do when we come back after the break. So um, after the break, we'll talk again. If you do want to call in, it's 800-516-1220 or radio at lawbob.com. This is attorney Bob Bergman, and I'll talk with you after the break. This is Plan Your Estate Radio with San Jose estate planning attorney Bob Bergman on AM 1220 KDOW. Hi, welcome back. Before the break, I was talking about the the, um, petitions that I do in court that are designed to actually fix broken trusts, uh, trusts that were appropriate maybe 15, 20, 30 years ago for married couples especially that, that are not appropriate anymore because of major changes in the federal estate tax laws. I, I brought that up because uh, I find a lot of people have had trusts like that prepared in the past. I prepared many of them myself in the past as an estate planning attorney. And for many, many people, those types of trusts that require a split of assets when the first spouse dies are actually uh, what I call broken trusts because that is not really necessary for the vast majority of families today, unlike maybe 25 or 30 years ago. So with that in mind, uh, that's probably the most common reason to go into court and request modification of the trust, um, for example, to remove the requirement that it be divided 
in half when the first spouse dies. The best time to do that is right after a spouse has passed away and you discover that you have that type of trust. Maybe you came in to meet someone like me and uh, take a look at the trust to do administration, and we discover at that time that it is an AB-type trust that has to be divided. And the decision is made, do we want to do that? Yes or no. Are there tax reasons to do it because it's a very large estate? If not, are there non-tax reasons to do it because you want to maybe provide asset protection for the deceased spouse's share of property uh, by putting it into a bypass trust for the benefit of the surviving spouse? And then the surviving spouse uh, can actually have those assets protected from things that might come against them. But if the surviving spouse is not in a high-risk profession, is not likely to be sued and have a massive judgment taken against them or anything like that, then having a bypass trust actually creates an administrative burden going forward because tax returns will have to be filed. And and maybe the, the real downside is when the survivor dies, any assets that were put into that bypass trust, if they've gone up in value since the date of the first spouse dying, then that increase in value would be subject to capital gains taxation if those assets are then sold, whether it's real estate or stocks or bonds or mutual funds, things like that, because the the acquisition cost, what we call the cost basis, is fixed as of the date of death of the first spouse. So if it's gone up in value and is then sold, you have to pay income tax on the increase in value. That can be avoided if instead we get rid of the requirement that a bypass trust be created at all. And so that's a common thing that I do going into court. Sometimes, however, um, there is a bypass trust and and the surviving spouse wants to be able to have the assets in that bypass trust get a, a new cost basis when the survivor dies but they don't want to give up the asset protection qualities of the bypass trust that's already in place and in effect. In a case like that, we can go into court and we can put a a general power of appointment into that bypass trust, which will cause the assets to be included in the taxable estate of the surviving spouse while not part of the surviving spouse's property during that person's lifetime. So there's asset protection and then the estate inclusion of a general power of appointment will actually mean that assets in the bypass trust will be revalued to the date of death value of those assets, the date of the surviving spouse's death, and then passed on to the next generation at the new higher value for income tax purposes. So that's another thing that we can do to modify a trust is to do that instead. Sometimes we go in to modify a trust to put in an existing bypass trust to put in a power to uh, distribute the assets of that trust um, basically in the discretion of the trustee which and if we put that in then the surviving spouse can turn around use that power to empty out the bypass trust, in other words, to transfer everything out of the bypass trust and then transfer it into the surviving spouse's own trust 
getting effectively the same result as if we got rid of the requirement to create the bypass trust in the first place, but now we're doing it after it's already created and in place. That is especially valuable if, as a couple I'm looking at right now, if the bypass trust was set up many years ago and real estate was put in and it's gone up tremendously in value since that time and the family would like to have a new higher value for income tax purposes when the surviving spouse dies. So that's another reason why we might do it. Yet another reason might be that the bypass trust is fine. They don't want to mess with that. But the family decides we'd like to set up and make sure that everything in the bypass trust and the trust of the survivor goes into asset-protected lifetime trusts for the children or the grandchildren. Older trusts tended to not have that as a distribution option. Instead, typically just distributed outright to the surviving children or maybe in installments, two or three installments at different ages. But very rarely would you see an asset-protected lifetime trust, similar in structure to a bypass trust, that would be used to provide asset protection for the inheritance. So that might be yet another reason to go in and modify an irrevocable trust, to put in those provisions so that now the surviving children or other heirs can have asset protection for their inheritance, protecting against divorcing spouses, lawsuits, creditors' claims, malpractice claims, things like that. And then if there's now a special needs beneficiary of that bypass trust, probably the trust did not provide to pass things on in a supplemental needs trust for that special needs beneficiary so that the inheritance would uh, would not interfere with whatever benefits they're receiving from the government, whether it's SSI for income or Medi-Cal for health insurance or Section 8 housing for housing, or any other benefit that is needs-based provided by the government. In a case like that, the um, someone could speak on behalf of that special needs person. It could be their conservator if they have one. It could also be what we call a guardian ad litem, which is an attorney that is appointed by the court to look out for the interests of that special needs person. So that person joining in with the other family members could actually go into court and modify the trust to make sure the inheritance is not subject to being claimed by the government uh, after the surviving spouse dies um, or is um, going to cause a loss of eligibility. Okay, we're coming up on the end of the second segment today. I urge you, if you'd like to talk with me, it's 800-516-1220. You can email questions to radio at lawbob.com. After the break, I'm going to come back. I'm going to start talking about questions and comments from around the state. So until then, this is attorney Bob Bergman. Bob Bergman. Talk with you after the break. Now, back to Plan Your Estate Radio with attorney Bob Bergman. Hi, welcome back. For those of you who are just joining, I have actually been um, talking about a number of things today. Uh, But the main thing is talking about 
the type of um, petition that I do that involves modification of an irrevocable trust or what we call an otherwise irrevocable trust. Um, as I said before the break, there's a lot of different reasons why we might do something like that. And what I have found is that most common is probably people, a uh, surviving spouse who doesn't want to actually be required to divide the property into um, more than one trust. I, I do have a uh, a workshop coming up on July 13th, starting at 11 o'clock, that is about uh, called Modifying Your Broken Living Trust Workshop, and where I go into depth on this, and I'm there also to answer questions about a half hour long. You can go to eventbrite.com, look up Modifying Your Broken Living Trust Workshop, and you'll be able to find that, register for it. Uh, the same day at 1130, I'm doing a, a workshop on uh, the Hegstat petition, which deals with getting uh, what's called gathering loose assets into a trust without probate. And uh, that's another one. You could register for that one as well if you'd like. Space is limited. So I urge you that if you would like to come see or uh, participate in one of those workshops to go to Eventbrite and register right away. You can also go to my website at lawbob.com where there are links to register for the individual websites. Uh, the links will take you right into Eventbrite so that you could register. Now, for the past year or so, I have uh, had this show on the air, and during that time, a lot of my shows have been taken up with covering various estate planning questions that people submit from all around the state of California. They don't submit them to me, but they do submit them to an organization I'm part of. And um, what I do is I find ones that appear to be interesting or appear to be general application as much as possible, and I share those on the air. So if you've just joined the show for the first time, um, this is a typical thing I do on the show. So um, here's an interesting question. When is a deed not valid? If I hold a deed and someone forged a backdated deed and recorded it, which deed takes precedence? So it's hard to tell if this person says they have a deed, that a joint tenancy deed that they had recorded, and then someone later recorded a backdated deed uh, from nine years ago, which changed the ownership to a fake trust and me. That sounds kind of interesting. Uh, the bottom line is if there's a forged deed, it doesn't take precedence over anything. But if there's a joint tenancy deed that was already recorded, then um, it kind of depends who signed the deed. Uh, very, Actually, very confusing question. Might be like a bar exam question. But uh, the bottom line is, if it is a forged deed, it can be proven that it's a forgery. Um, the, the likelihood is that the, the joint tenancy deed is the one that's valid and not some backdated deed. Okay, here's someone trying to create a new checking savings account under their irrevocable trust with the bank saying they need the original certification of trust to proceed, not just a photocopy. Uh, I talked to my lawyer, was told a copy's good enough. Who's right? I think the lawyer's right about that. But the bottom line is if you're going to go to a bank 
and you're trying to establish an account with a bank, with a trust, they should have a form for you to fill out, a certification of trust form to fill out and sign that provides them the information that they need in order to do business with you. Um, An original certification of trust, I've never known a bank insisting that they be provided with the one that you have, but they certainly will insist often that you provide them a certification of trust on their form. So that's a little bit different. Okay, my mother's been living in my house rent-free for about 14 years. I've heard if someone has lived with you for so many years, legally I cannot make them leave if they don't want to. Is this true? I don't believe that's true. I mean, it's been many years since I practiced landlord-tenant law, probably over 30 years ago. But I can tell you that uh, someone just living in your house rent-free is what's called a tenant at will, meaning that they have the right to stay there as long as you will that, meaning that you permit that. Um, If the person refuses to move out, I think you're well within your rights in the absence of some other agreement to the contrary to give them notice to move if they don't move. Start what's called an unlawful detainer proceeding to have to get a court order to have them physically removed from your property if necessary. If they don't voluntarily move after they're given that court order, then a sheriff can show up and physically move them out of the property. In which case, if you do that, you immediately have a locksmith there or you're there ready to rekey the property so the person can't let themselves back in. Okay, now this is a probate question. Person asks, do I need to sign a waiver of bond for my parents' probate? My sister is asking me to sign a waiver of bond. Is this to protect the heirs or beneficiaries in the probate process? Should I seek out a lawyer to protect myself? Let me explain what we're talking about there. In probate, there is a general legal requirement that a bond be posted that's in the um, the value of the probate assets. So if there's a million-dollar house, then there has to be a million-dollar bond. It's called a surety bond. That's S-U-R-E-T-Y, surety bond. And a surety bond is there to make sure that if the person handling the estate, the administrator if there's no will, or the executor if there is a will, to make sure that if they make a mistake, or they embezzle or something like that, there's this bond over here that will pay the value of what was lost into the estate so the estate and the the heirs and beneficiaries are made whole. Now, a surety bond costs money, and typically it's an expense that's charged against the estate. So it reduces the overall value of the estate for the heirs and beneficiaries because you have to pay for that bond. A waiver of bond means that, hey, if all of the heirs and beneficiaries agree to waive the requirement of a bond, which can be done in most but not all cases, then you don't have to post that bond and everybody saves some money by doing that. Now, you would probably only do that if you completely trusted the person that was handling the administration of the estate whether it's a sibling or an aunt or an uncle or a cousin, whoever it happens to be, um, that you trust them. 
it sounds here like maybe this person doesn't completely trust the sister, in which case having a bond in place probably makes more sense. Even though it's going to cost some money, you now have something, you have a surety or or certainty, if you will, that if something goes wrong and the sister decides to uh, sell the property and take the cash, pocket it, and head off to Brazil or something, that the surety bond is there to make a claim and pay back the estate the money that was taken by the executor or administrator. Okay, here's someone, oh gosh, out of, out of Southern California. My mother's caregiver got power of attorney behind my sister and my back. I'm trying to figure this is, if this is even legal. My mother took hell. Her caregiver moved her away from my family and cut off all contacts. We finally found my mom in the hospital, but we still can't see her because she gave power of attorney. Okay, it's not unusual sometimes for someone to give power of attorney to someone who's not their family if they don't have a good relationship with their family. Maybe they don't trust their family to look out for them. However, when they give it to a caregiver, that raises red flags for me. In a case like this, if there's any concern that the family has that their caregiver has exceeded authority or has acted contrary to the best interests of the parent, they should consider contacting Adult Protective Services in whatever county this is taking place so that Adult Protective Services can do an investigation, talk with the mother, find out what she did, and make sure that she really does know what she, what she was doing. And she gave power of attorney willingly, and she was not operating under some mental incapacity or duress or something along those lines. Um, that would be the appropriate response, um, is to actually get the authorities involved to investigate because they cannot be prevented from seeing and talking with the mother in the hospital if they're doing a formal investigation. Now we're approaching the um, the end of the third segment of the show today. If you've just joined us, I want to let you know I do have some new seminars and workshops coming up uh, all on July 13th. I've got my Living Trust Seminar starting at 9 o'clock in my office. My new workshop, Modifying Your Broken Living Trust Workshop, uh, coming up at 11 o'clock. And then Gathering Loose Assets into a Trust Without Probate, which has to do with, with what's called the Hegstat Petition. You can visit my website at lawbob.com to check up on those, uh, to register or eventbrite.com and look for seminars and workshops on July 13th. You'll be able to find them there. So um, we have the fourth segment coming up after the break. So until then, this is estate planning attorney Bob Bergman, and I'll get back and talk with you after the break. Now, back to Plan Your Estate Radio. Once again, your host, estate planning trust and probate law specialist, attorney Bob Bergman. Hi, welcome back. We're moving into the final segment of the show today. 
I thought I would cover a few more of these situations from around the state and um, and then maybe move in to close out the show today, uh, give you a little bit more information about my seminars coming up and uh, and also something you might be surprised to hear about the type of work that I do um, in the, in the area of those particular petitions. So here, um, here's two questions kind of related to each other. Um, so the question is, um, in both cases, we have here, uh, one we have, I, a person owns a house in joint tenancy with their daughter. They understand if something happens to both of them, um, says my abusive son-in-law will inherit the house. How can I prevent this? Putting it in a trust? Uh, well, first of all, um, a son-in-law is not someone's heir. Um, unless the son-in-law, unless they're the heir of a daughter, but they're not the heir of the mother-in-law. The in-law relationship does not create any inheritance rights. Um, but if there's a concern that this person dies and everything goes to her daughter, then her daughter dies and it goes to the son-in-law because he is the surviving spouse. Well, you can prevent this. You can prevent this by putting the property into a trust, either putting your interest into the trust or if the daughter is on as a joint tenant solely for the purpose of making sure that the property gets turned over to the daughter when the mother dies or the father dies, whoever it is that's holding it in joint tenancy, then I would probably recommend that they consider having the daughter return the property back to the parent, then the parent put it into a trust and then make provisions that it passes on in trust to the daughter, uh, probably a lifetime trust for the daughter, and then it passes on to the daughter's children, or if no children, it goes to other family members or charity. This is if the this person does not want the abusive son-in-law being involved in any way with that property. Now here's a, here's a family, a, a couple out of the Central Valley, says they'd like to um, disinherit a daughter they haven't seen in 15 years. 15 years. Now, they they don't have the address of, of this daughter, and they wanted to know if we disinherit her um, in our estate planning documents, do we have to notify her? And the answer is, no, you don't. Um, they wanted to know if we disinherit our daughter, will that disinherit her four children? Well, that depends. If you have an estate planning document that says, I disinherit my daughter Jane and her descendants, then that means her children and her grandchildren and everything, they're basically completely cut out. They're treated legally as if they were already deceased. They had already died, effectively that they don't exist at all as far as the plan is concerned. If they just disinherit their daughter, then it becomes a little more foggy. You have to say you have to see what did the document actually say. Does it just disinherit the daughter, but there's language that says divide into as many shares as we have children, 
or children who were uh, who predeceased and left children um does that mean that the children of this disinherited daughter are automatically ex- automatically excluded in a case like that if the intention is to exclude those children of the of the disinherited child as well that should be explicitly stated in the estate planning documents if you leave it kind of vague it creates ambiguities and that and when you have ambiguities you end up oftentimes with people fighting because it's not really clear what someone intended now i've talked today about uh doing special types of petitions uh to modify irrevocable trusts and one of the things i want to communicate to everyone here is that i can do this kind of work anywhere in the state of California. I can do it for anybody who is the trustee of a trust, the surviving spouse on a trust, who needs to get assets into a trust where the person was a California resident, had a California trust. I do this kind of work for attorneys and their clients all around the state of California. At any given time, I probably have a half a dozen different petitions going. Most of them come from Southern California counties like Orange, Riverside, San Bernardino, Los Angeles. I've done them as far north as Lake County and Del Norte. I've done them for Alameda County, as well as my own Santa Clara County uh, and San Mateo County as well. Um, I can do these everywhere because of a way that I have worked out uh, to do this. So if you're listening from somewhere else in the state, give me a call, 408-247-0444, and let's talk. I can help you with either type of petition. If you're listening right now here in the Bay Area and you have a situation like that, give me a call as well. I'll be happy to talk with you. Well, we're winding up today. That's the end of our show today. I hope you've enjoyed it and you've been entertained. Please check out my upcoming seminars on July 13th through my website or at Eventbrite. And uh, feel free to register. I'd love to see you at my office here in San Jose on uh, Saturday morning, the 13th of July. Until next week, this is Attorney Bob Bergman. Talk with you then. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Plan Your Estate Radio with estate planning attorney Bob Bergman. For more information on today's program or to schedule a consultation, visit lawbob.com, where you'll also find information on his upcoming estate planning seminars. L-A-W-B-O-B, lawbob.com. Or call his office in San Jose, 408-247-0444. That's 408-247-0444. And be sure to tune in next week for more Plan Your Estate Radio. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of this station and are for informational purposes only and should not be construed to be legal, financial, or tax advice. Seek appropriate legal advice regarding your particular situation. Attorney Bob Bergman does not offer any guarantees with regard to the outcome of your legal matter. Prior results in other cases do not guarantee a similar outcome in your case. All rights reserved. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn. 
deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.